here I am. I want to start with a commercial. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a commercial for the Exponential website, actually, uh, because there are a whole bunch of free resources on that website, and like 150 books, I think, we're approaching right now. We're using those in Mongolia, <clears throat> in Myanmar, uh, the Philippines, Sri Lanka. Uh, they all speak English there, and, it, and it's free stuff. And it's free stuff that you could be using. And one of the latest books, their theme book for this year, they're doing five of these theme books, but mine that I wrote is called Equipping Everyday Missionaries in a Post-Christian Era. And a lot of what I'm going to talk about today, it, it found its way in this book. And so um, it's there, it's free, you ought to take advantage of it. I have a website called ralphmore.net, and I, I do a blog every two weeks and do podcasts. And normally the podcast, um, this time I've got some people who are the big boys, but normally I'm trying to get the guys that are down in the trenches where they're still suffering, because that's who largely is listening to it and benefiting from it. And so uh, it's free, it's just there, and, and you can use it. As I uh, come here today, I, 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 I'm, the notes that I'm working with, I. I was doing a teaching yesterday for Exponential, and I just saw things that I've done my whole life, and it, and it kind of lined up in a way that it's easier to present. And so the, the notes are, are, are a work in progress. And my friend Curtis, we've been talking for a while, and he's getting ready to go to Sweden, start a church, and start a business at the same time. And um, as, as, as we're talking, he, he's, he's feeding back to me stuff that we've talked about in the past, and it's like the notes just keep changing and everything. So um, I, I met a guy named David Kim this morning, and, and he handed me a brochure, and it's like, oh, that's a word that, we, that I forgot we used to use called glocal. And I, I, I'm here to tell you that I think that this is wonderful, what you're doing. I think the perception in other places is that this is probably the premier uh, citywide church planting network in the nation. Uh, you're the benchmark. The fact that you're doing the thing that you're doing in Exponential in March is wonderful because uh, people in San Diego really need what you guys have. And we really are stumble bumbling our way in it. It, it, it. We need it. We need it. But the word glocal to me, I think every congregation ought to be a glocal church. I think if you guys stop with being a network that sponsors people, uh, being a network that does residencies, all those wonderful things that you're doing that I think are great, and you should do more of them. But if you stop there, you failed. If you succeed, it will be because you, you, you at least have, I mean, the parable of the sower, at least 25% of the churches that you're involved with, because 75% don't make it, could see themselves as a global church. In other words, Acts 1-8 works out in, in our congregation of 130 people. And we're in touch with some people from an entirely different culture, which may be local. Or we are sending people to Africa every year. My, my daughter right now is uh, making her way from Bulgaria back into Turkey to work with ISIS refugees. Um, and, and she's a California resident whose house is being out on Airbnb paying her way. Uh, she, and, she and her husband have been doing this thing. Uh, they were doing it in India before, but they, they've been doing this. And, and so there's, there, people are traveling around the world, and the smallest church has potential 
to reach into another country. Whenever we send anybody out to plant a church, and by the way, when we send out people, I'm going to talk a little bit about microchurch, but we just didn't do microchurch. I wrote a book for Exponential on microchurch or simple church or organic church, whatever you want to call it. And I could only scum up out of 2,600 churches, I could only find eight that were intentionally microchurches. The rest, our goal was always 150 people. And one of them right now is the biggest church in Hawaii, one of the churches that was a daughter church, one of my disciples, uh, 7,000 people. And, and, and so the numbers really aren't an issue. When I say the word church, uh, I'll accept two or three gathered together in an auto shop, uh, you know, pushing the cars out of the way. Uh, I, have, I, 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 I happily embrace anything as a church that's two or more gathered in Jesus' name and they're making disciples and they're on mission. I struggle with a church that's just a big fat crowd of people and they're not doing very much of anything. And so to me, a local church is we are, however big or however small we are, we're, we got our fingers out there someplace. So we send a guy out to plant a church and, and we send 150 people with him. Uh, one, of the, one of the commissions is start to pray for God to give you a foothold in another country. And we see God answer that prayer over and over and over. But also, a local church, the local side of it, ought not to just be come here on Sunday morning, but it, it ought to be what people groups are in our community. And we think of people groups in terms of geography, in terms of, of DNA, ethnicity, and we think of them in terms of language. Uh, how, how can we get into the people who hang out in that tattoo parlor? Because they are an oikos. When you read Romans, the 16th chapter, you, re you read about the household of Narcissus, the household of Aristobulus. Those men aren't necessarily believers. We don't know if they were or weren't, but we know they were probably slaveholders. And so the household would be some folks in the neighborhood, some folks who are slaves, some folks who are freed people who work there, maybe some of Aristobulus's kids, and maybe Aristobulus, we don't know. It's an oikos, it's, a, it's an extended family. We live in a world where families don't live adjacent to each other anymore, mostly. But everybody has their own oikos. I was talking to a friend this morning, we were talking about, my, my thing is nobody has more than 20 friends. You may have a bunch of acquaintances, but, but you can't handle, I mean, honestly, mo nobody really has more than about six or seven friend friends. And so how do we get into these oikos? You know, there's a man in this room that has started two missional communities in barber colleges. There's a lady in this room whose son has decided to go into the inner city of Houston and live on the streets with homeless people and pastor those people. There's a friend of mine in Hawaii who doesn't drink alcohol, but he and his wife go to a bar, a kind of a sleazy bar, every Sunday night and eat dinner because God called me to pastor those people in that bar, and I'm going to pastor them by being their friends. And so as we think about this, what, what, I, what I want to leave you with is a, a way of getting the job done the Great Commission done with a little bit less activity and a little bit more effectiveness. I want you to think in these terms, and there's going to be a book coming out of Exponential that will use these terms, and, but I'm, I'm trying to plow some ground. An AOS versus an MOS, an addition-oriented operating system or a multiplication 
oriented operating system. And I hope before the day is done to present to you a multiplication oriented operating system that can work whether there's eight people in your church or 8,000 people in your church. It's worked for us when there was like 12, 30, 50, 60. We had 125, we'd officially planted a church. We gave away 20% 20 of our people that day. We've done that one over and over again. But it, 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 can, it can work at any size. And so as we get into this, how, how did we get to the addition-oriented operating system that we all live with today? Well, we got there by consumerism. Uh, basically, we came out of World War II, and the church popped with growth. All these GIs came home. They put families together. America was, quote, a Christian nation, and everybody went to church, although not everybody was really serving Jesus. And I grew up in that. I, I was born in 1945 at the end of the war. In 1956, peak church attendance in America. I was in the sixth grade, 11 years old. I went to the biggest church in the state of Oregon, the biggest church in my denomination, and it was a show. Every movie star, the governor of the state, five-star general. Uh, there, was a, there was a TV show called Bronco Lane, and I remember when Ty Harden came, gave his testimony in church, and then... I, I remember fast forward 25, 30 years later when, when this uh, struggling alcoholic named Ty Harden ends up in the back row of my church in Southern California. But we were a show, and we did Sunday school contests. We did a lot of nonsensical things, and, and, uh, and, and, and then it all slumped. And then in the middle of the slump, the Jesus movement came on, and it really was a revival. You know, people who survived it, like me, uh, talk about it, and, and people who are younger like you go, yeah, it's just a bunch of old guys having fond memories. Uh, but the truth was, it wasn't a revival while it was happening. It was just that us smart baby boomers knew how to do church better than those old geezers. And then it was over. And when it was over, and you got to actually do work, because you know what? You just walked up to somebody in the street with the four spiritual laws, and they're liable to get saved. You I can remember when it was over. I, I, I was so mad. We'd gotten a building, an old abandoned bowling alley, and I was furious with my wife and Billy Boyd. Billy Boyd is the wife of my first disciple, the kid who taught me how to make disciples, and Dan Boyd. And they're, they're just now getting ready to retire from Hope Chapel, Santa Rosa, church of a couple thousand people, I think. But Billy and, and, and my wife Ruby were starting a women's group in our church. And I was mad about it because you don't need a stupid women's group and you don't need a softball team and you don't need all that rot that all those stupid people were doing. We came along and had a revolution. Here's what you need is you need to sing worship songs for an hour and you need to talk about the Bible for an hour and you need to get these people meeting together during the week and that's church and that's going to win the world. And then it was over. And I knew it was over the day I was having the pity party in the parking lot, and I realized, oh my gosh, it's over. We've got to do something different. Well, here's the problem. During the so-called Jesus movement, we had this, what I would today call a microchurch or simple church or whatever. They were called Christian coffee houses. Although in those days, pre-Starbucks, nobody drank coffee. It was all, you know, sodas. But you'd have a little band, and, and you'd be in the church basement or in a garage someplace, and it was a Christian coffee shop, and you'd put uh, carpet squares. You'd go to the 
carpet store and you get the samples and you put them all over the floor and some people put them on the walls and we had one of those in our, in our church and there were about 50 kids that would show up that didn't come to church on Sunday morning. And they were there and Mike and Franny Baldwin led this thing every week and they were a little goofy and they were hippified and I knew them when they quit selling drugs and started selling sand candles. You go to the, you know, get sand at the beach and you scoop it out and you pour melted wax in there, colored melted wax with a little wick, and then you go to the swap meet and you sell the sucker. I, I, that was really what happened. And um, I didn't realize they were pastoring 50 people. And if I was half a brain, I, I would have identified that thing as a church. And the whole Jesus movement, nobody ever saw those as churches. But here's a weird thing that happened. Some of those guys... One of them was named Bill Hybels. Just exploded. And they bought into something that I would call consumer Christianity. And one of the guiding lights in that movement was a believer, I think he's a Roman Catholic, named Peter Drucker. And he, there's this famous five questions that he asks of, of nonprofits, but three of them were, were critical to the consumer-oriented addition operating system that we enjoy today or don't enjoy today. One of the things that I love about COVID is that it, it's causing us to retrace and to, to it, it's breaking our parameters and, and we're having to do some new things and I love it. But here's the, here's the questions. Who is your customer? What does your customer want? And what is the best delivery system to satisfy the wants or the desires of your customer? Well, the customer is that person who is spiritually hungry that we call a seeker. What does the customer want? Well, they want health, wealth, and a, and a nice life for their children. And what's the best delivery system? Well, a whole bunch of church programs that, 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 that meet people's needs. And they often turn into silos. And that's what I want to talk about is move, taking the silos, getting rid of some of them, and pulling the others together so they're vertically integrated. I want you to take Drucker's three questions and change the customer to God. What does the customer want? Well, he wants reconciliation with his creation. What's the best delivery system? Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, including go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, including, and it goes on from there. So as, 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 as we change the customer, then everything changes. And, and our whole view of church changes from a semi-business to something that's organic, something that's fluid, that can flow. I was just talking to somebody as we were sitting at the table, and he's going, my, my son has started a, 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 a small local microchurch, but they're also online, and they're all over the country. And, and, and they get together through a Zoom thing, and, and they're in the Word, and they share the Word and what God's doing in their lives and everything. But somebody's come up with a, with a, with a question. How, because we are so geographically spread all over the world, how do we come together to do ministry? Well, you don't. You do the ministry out there, and then you report back you know, to, to the life group or whatever the world you want to call the thing. Am I making sense? And so 
what, what I think that we really need to, to do is go, um, who's the customer? Well, it's God. What does God want? Well, he wants reconciliation. What's the best delivery system? Go and make disciples. Pretty simple. And so I'm going to tell you some stuff that I did. And that's all I really have to offer is, here's what I did. Here, here's what I know. Here's what I did. Um, I believe uh, it's effective because I, we've experienced the effects. Um, we're not real big in seminary. We, we were really big on go to university and, and learn how to make some money. And then we'll train you how to be a pastor inside the church because the, the church is a disciple-making machine. It ought to be. And so we're going to teach you how to do that. And so I want you to think of, of, of silos. And uh, there's a church that I know right now, a really good church. And they've planted a bunch of churches, almost a church a year for their whole existence. And I was with some of these people recently, and they were frustrated. They were, they were uh, frustrated. They're, they're, they were just a part of the church. They were in a, you know, they call them, I don't know, it's a home group thing, you know, a midweek part of the, it's a, it's a church of about 1,000 people. So this is like 20 people get together. And they're frustrated because we need to work harder at community. We're not working hard enough at community. We don't know each other well enough. The pastor, I know. And the pastor is frustrated because uh, this is in California. Everybody's moving to Texas or Idaho. And, and, and so he's trying to stop them from moving to Texas. And part of what we've talked about is, well, ask, did God call you to Texas or is he calling you to San Diego? Because if he's calling you to San Diego, he can make your mortgage. So don't worry about that, just if you're, you're called. But, but the problem that I sense is these people don't love each other. They like each other. They don't know each other well enough to love each other. The pastor is frustrated. We need to work harder at community. But here's what goes on in the church. There's, there's, a, there's a, a hiatus between their small groups. We, we, we don't meet for eight weeks, and then we're going to meet for 13 weeks, and then we're going to miss 12 weeks during the summer, and then we're going to come back. In, in, in the churches that I pastored, uh, we, we meet every, every week that you're meeting unless it's Christmas Day. And if only two people show up, well, sometimes that's richer than when 18 showed up. We're just there. We're always there. We, we're, we're bonded to each other in love. So I was looking at the calendar of this church, and, and they have, a, they have a, a, a thing for new Christians. They have a thing for... Uh, if you'd like to get involved and learn what it means to be to be a volunteer, and there's a, like a six-week thing over here. They have a missions conference going on. They have a uh, how to have a healthy marriage thing going on. These are silos. And they don't, they're not integrated around what, what is the stated goal of the church. Because this is a global church. It wants to be a global church. And as a matter of fact, this particular church is doing great things globally and has never planted a church locally. Odd. I mean, they're in Thailand, they're in France, Tanzania, and they don't know how to do stuff in their own backyard. And, and, they're, and they're, they're struggling with it. It's good people really wanting to do good things. But I, I got to talking to some of these people in this, um, this small group deal that they do. And so here, here, here was the, the first part of the year. Well, we didn't meet the first week because... They're coming off the holidays. We want to give everybody a break. 
And the second week, we all met together. And the third week is men only. And the fourth week is women only. And then there's the missions conference. So we're going to cancel the meetings in case people want to go to the meetings. How in the world are you going to build community? And so when these people are feeling guilty, we're not doing enough to build community. It's like, well, your church isn't letting you. But they haven't figured that one out. The pastor, when I talk to him, he's going, we need to work harder at building community. But your silos are keeping community from happening. And so I want you to think in, in these terms. And, and it's kind of a vertical integration. It's really the way I pastor churches. I believe that values are more important than vision. And sometimes I get into arguments, and probably I trigger them, but I get into arguments with young pastors who have been to some seminar, and they're all hyped up, and, and basically what they got is a business model, not a ministry model. And, and, and we, we will get into flash arguments about why, why vision trumps values. And usually the argument kind of goes like this. Well, you got a bunch of church with a bunch of 80-year-old people, and they got values, but they don't have any vision. Vision is more important than values. No, if all you have is vision, you can get your vision out of a magazine or, or a, you know, some business thing. You know, Todd Wilson's always saying, some of the churches in America, you don't have to even be a Christian. You just have to know how to run the machinery. So values, to me, start with Matthew chapter 28. The whole deal is about that. It starts with Paul talking about be, being reconcilers, reconciling people to God. But, it, but it's the, the values that are driving everything in my brain have to do with disciples making disciples, making disciples, making disciples. And then after that, I want to get to vision. And when I start to think of vision, the, the word mission, and I'm going to, I never did this as a preacher, but I got a whole bunch of words that start with M today. And so mission, vision, mission, Acts 1-8. We're in Manhattan Beach, California, 1456 Manhattan Beach Boulevard. There's 12 of us on a Sunday morning. Next week, there's 18 of us. The preacher's wearing a suit and tie and got a white wall haircut, and there's all these hippies and bikers and a topless dancer named Kitten that show up. And everything has to adjust around that mission because in that part of that little community, that culture was a hippified culture. And so we had to change. But then right to the east of us was a, a bunch of Hispanic-speaking Hispanics. They, they didn't, English wasn't going so hot there. How do we penetrate? We know what our Jerusalem is. How do we get to our Judea and Samaria? And we did a pretty good job over there. Up to the northeast of us were um, African-American community. And every so often, somebody from that community would find their way into our fellowship. We were a surfer church also. And so through surfing, we had young, smart African-American guys in our congregation, and we would try to sponsor them to plant churches, and somehow we failed. We just didn't, we didn't get what culturally they needed. Then we begin to think of Judea, and for us, Judea was the state of California. We started thinking of the ends of the earth, and oh, we got as far as Kansas City, and, and then we, we met a guy from Kenya. He was studying in the United States, and 
uh, he ended up in our church. And uh, we, we actually took offerings and bought seven cows for him to buy a bride in Kenya. And when he went back to Kenya, we stayed in touch with him. And so we were doing, the, the, the vision, the mission was, how do we reach these places with boundaries around them that God has shown us are our places, our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, our part, our little chunk of the ends of the earth. When I begin to really one day meditate on Acts 1-8, I got out from under the gun of the Ralph Moore has to reach the whole world for Jesus. You know, I was about 26 years old, and I figured out that isn't my problem. It's really his. And by the way, he told Peter a couple of really important things. One was, I will build my church. And the other was, you go feed my sheep. And so what I'm talking about now is taking the, the vision the, the, the values, the vision, and beginning to, to flesh it out in terms of how do I feed these sheep so that the customer gets what he wants out of it, the customer being God the Father. And so the next part of this, so I'm going from values to vision, which is mission. So Matthew 28 to Acts 1-8 to the message. The message. I, 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 in, in our Church culture, we tried to dampen and not use the word preach or the word sermon. We're there to, to, to teach the Bible. We're there to equip you to do the work of the ministry. I remember one time in, in Hawaii, I'd, I pastored in California for 12 years. I was the 30th past church planter to leave the church that I had planted. And we moved to Hawaii. And we, we had some money. Uh, we thought we had rented a building. We got there, and they, they took the building away from us. So we started on a beach. It was illegal and crazy and all that. But I, I, I remember, I, I, if I remember well, I think it was within the first probably 18 months. I don't remember exactly. But one Sunday I got up, because we, we called our, our, our home groups mini church. We killed our Wednesday night deal and so that we could do mini church. And we had run into a study that said, if you will repeat something that you heard within seven days, you'll remember twice as much of it long term. So if I can get them talking about what I taught them, then I become twice as good a teacher. And so we threw away the midweek prayer deal and we put people and we, we, we were a church about, at this time by about 600. I was still in California when we invented mini church. What had happened was we started with a little bunch of hippies and then we grew and we we're still a bunch of hippies. And middle-class people would come, and they didn't want to be there. And then we went from the community center where we are in the gym till we got this bowling alley up on stilts that has a gorgeous view of the Pacific Ocean. Property today that we paid $350,000 for is worth $52 million. And, um, and I'm not there, so I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, um, all, all of a sudden, there's, there's a Rolls-Royce in the stinking parking lot next to rusty Volkswagens. There's a number of Mercedes and BMWs in the parking lot. And I'm kind of a, I read the Book of James guy, I make it my career to not know who owns those cars. I don't want to be tempted to go after the money people that are in the church. But weird stuff is ours happening. Our, that guy Dan Boyd that's in Santa Rosa, uh, we've hired him now as our youth pastor and he shows up the second week that we're in the new building in a suit. We popped from 400 
hippified people to 800 people who don't know each other, and there's a dilution because the, the, the people who know each other now are spread apart by the other people being in between. There's no chance for the new people to get to know each other or to integrate into the church. That word we use so well, assimilation, is going backwards. And so about five, six weeks in, we're gone from 400 to 800. NBC actually came out and did a, a, a four-minute news story that went across the country about this. And then we shrink back down to 600, and we're, and, and we're not making budget yet, and we're shrinking fast. And so we got to do something to get these people integrated to each other, and, and we came up with this idea of mini-church. Not small group, not life group, mini-church. That is your church. This is your pastor. You do church things. And, then, and, and, and this is more of a stunt. I mean, it's real, but it still is kind of a stunt. We went and got the, those mini-church pastors the license to do weddings. And we encouraged them weddings, funerals, baby dedications, baptisms. And we did all these things publicly. If people weren't part of the mini-church, we'd still do them. But what we'd rather you do, and, and you know, we have big beach baptism, 45 people get baptized, but we'd rather you go baptize somebody in a swimming pool in, in the house where you guys do mini church because that's the church. And so I remember in Hawaii one day I stood up, and it was just a joke when I did it, and I, it became a tool. And I go, you know, I just want to make a really solemn promise to all of you here today. Um, we're new, and we're still getting to know each other, and... I, I just want you to know if, if you're sick or you get injured and you're in the hospital, uh, well, the promise is I'm not coming to visit you. In California, they used to tease me and call me the Pope of Hope after we started planting churches. Uh, that was after they had called us Dope Chapel. Um, <laughs> there was fairly good reason for that one. <laughs> but um, so I turned it around. I go... So I am the Pope of Hope. I just want you to know that. And the Pope doesn't go to hospitals. Because this isn't a church. This is a convention that meets every Sunday. And you're welcome to be here. But you're not a member unless you're in a mini church. And I'm not coming to the hospital. But also, your mini church pastor, he's not coming to the hospital either. Because his job, like mine is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So those people will be in the hospital. And by the way, if you're not in a mini church and you're just a spectator, well, I'm a pretty good talker and you're, you're welcome to come and listen to me talk every week. Just make sure you throw some money in the bucket on the way out the door. And everybody would laugh and everybody would get the point. We had defined membership, not by come, but by be a part of something. Where, 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 now what are we doing? We're taking the, 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 the values, the vision, and we're bringing it into Scripture into it. I think I just lost this thing. As we teach the Bible, uh, we're fleshing it out. We're equipping the saints through the Scripture. And I'm one of these, just go through the, I'm not expository, but I go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and try to make it funny. I learned how to do hero making long before I read Dave's book. And I, and I tell stories. I'll, I'll, I like to tell stories like I'm telling stories right now. But you know, what is your name? Scotty. Scotty. So you know what? Today, I, before we get in the Word today, I just want to tell you about what Scotty did this week. He's so cool. And after I get done with it, 
And by the way, this is, what, this is where it fits with where we're at in the Bible today. And so we're, we're, just, we're, we're integrating everything. And then as, as we go on with the message, I, I relate all of this to Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. I'm, I'm here to equip you to go there and do that stuff. And, and I'm not the minister. You know, that's another word that early on we threw away in terms of the, the, the vocational staff. Don't call us ministers. Everybody's the minister. I'm a minister when I'm in my neighborhood with my next-door neighbor, Tony Nguyen, Vietnamese guy. Then's when I'm a minister. When I'm in church, I have this role of leader of the congregation. And so we go from there, and then what we're doing is we're equipping these people who are ministers in our congregation to do ministry. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in church since I was five, and I memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to go to a youth camp. If I would memorize 62 scriptures or something, I could get a free ride to youth camp. And I never got to verse 10. And I, I can remember the day, I think I was still in California when I was preaching, and all of a sudden, I mean, I'm going through the Bible. You know, I've studied and done all that stuff and everything, but all of a sudden I'm standing up there in front of these people, and it's like, whoa, God's masterpieces, God's special creation. And somehow out of that we begin to realize that, that we're not saved by good works, we're saved under good works, that we should walk in them, and, and God made you special so that you could do stuff in special places different than other people would do stuff in special places. And so well, that kind of turned into um, this idea of friendship evangelism, which leads to disciple-making. And I kind of believe that what we ought to be doing now is discipling people into Christ, especially since we live in such a hostile world toward the gospel, especially since 70% of the people in America just ain't interested well, so what do you do? Well, you invade their space by being their friend. And you, every, you, know, you link your story to their story. They're moaning and groaning about something. Well, you've moaned and groaned before, and, and maybe you, know, you prayed, and this weird thing happened. God, you know? And, and, and you begin to bring it in, and it becomes a follow me as I, as I follow Christ. Follow me into Christ. And so, again, what we're trying to do is take all these programs, you know, marriage enrichment, uh, how to do child, all that. We, we would bring that into what's coming across the pulpit. Because too much of, of our sermons are entertaining or uplifting or whatever. No, we're equipping you to raise your children. We're equipping you to love your spouse. We're equipping you to do these things. And, and, and this is the message. This is the purpose behind what we're teaching on the weekend that's getting driven into your heart as you're interacting with each other with it during the week. And so... We were able to kill a lot of programs. We wouldn't let programs start. Somebody comes and says, I want to do this in the church. Go for it. You know, how can we support you? But then every year we would kind of list everything, every function that was going on in our church, and we'd, we'd list it hierarchically, and we'd try to look, can we, could we eliminate 8 to 10% of these things this year? Just kind of let them die on the vine because they don't contribute to the primary task of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Am I... Getting there with this? And so then, as we are building these ministries, we've got to start to think about mobilization and, and, and how does it look. And, and, it, and again, I come back to the mini church thing. We're, you're operating over there. We, we want you to look a lot like Acts 2 
uh, verses 41 to 47. The apostles' teaching, well, we, we asked these three questions. What did the Spirit say to you while the person was talking on the weekend? Not what does it say, what does it mean, what does it mean to me? But what did the Spirit say to you while you were listening to God's Word? Second, so we're teaching people to listen. Second question is we're teaching you to obey. What are you going to do because of what the Holy Spirit told you? And you know, I come from a tradition, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and sometimes in, in, the, in that church tradition, they have what I call accountability churches. You know, they have, you guys, some of you have throne churches. That's where, you know, all the, all the hotshots sit up on the platform while the worship is going on. I grew up in a throne church. I didn't grow up in an accountability church. But the, you have these, these churches where we're going to hold people in accountability and, you know, to spiritual disciplines. And, and sometimes that becomes almost cultish. Here's what we found is if you say the Spirit told me to do this and I'm going to do it this way in front of your friends, you just probably will do it. And so there, there's a built-in accountability just you sharing your life with each other. The third question that, and we built everything around this, our training module was we read books together and we ask these same three questions. The third question was, how can we help you or how can we pray for you as you live out God's will in your life? And what we discovered is spiritual gifts in our church. We found that when people actually begin to care for each other, the gifts actually emerge. And the spiritual gifts profiles that didn't do us so much good, uh, suddenly we're, we're beginning to discover things that are really wonderful. And then, Lastly, the thing that I want to think about here is um, that people would become missionaries to their oikos. And that if we've, if we've turned the church into a disciple-making machine, they're going to know how to go into that world that they live in. And it's really easy for me to, 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 to rip off a bunch of stuff that doesn't probably mean much to you. I, 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 I'm a surfer. I'm a wannabe surfer. I'm not very good at it. Uh, and I actually have quit because... One of my friends drowned of a minor heart attack while he was in the water. and He would have survived on land, so I, I quit. I'm too old. I'm 77 years old. But you know what? The surfing community back in the Jesus Movement day, uh, it got to where Surfer Magazine, the little cartoon character in Surfer Magazine, got saved because the cartoonist Rick Griffin got saved. And for, for four or five years, Surfer Magazine, which had a lot of sleaze in it, also had a whole lot of Jesus in it. And a lot of churches got planted in the, in the surfing community. I, I, I got a friend who uh, makes horrible music. Uh, that scritchy, scratchy, turntable, weirdo stuff you do. And he makes a living selling it to Hollywood. And you know what? He's running an online Zoom church with other people who are in that same music community who mostly live in California, but some live on the East Coast. I have a friend who I, I, I hooked up with him through Exponential, and he's a gamer. And I don't even get the game. I, 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 I can do solitaire on my phone, you know. Um, but he's a gamer, and, and he, he started people, I guess they do a chat while the game's going on, and people are complaining about stuff, and he's going, well, I, I'm a follower of Christ. Would it be okay if I pray with you? Well, by the time that we talked, there were 200 people involved in a Saturday morning Zoom deal where he's just doing a little Bible study. And you know what? It's not the best. 
I mean, it would be far better if they're face-to-face -face in, a, in a room. It would be actually far better if there was 12 of them in a Zoom thing than 200 in a Zoom thing. But the last time I talked to him, there's like 2,400 people now in clusters, Zoomy clusters. And again, it's not the best, but it's better than nothing. And so here's a guy who has a job, who likes to do stupid things online in video games, who has figured out a way to become an everyday missionary into that world. And the, the, the opportunities are, are all out there. But, but here's what I want to leave you with. Who's the customer that you're trying to satisfy? Is it that human? Are you preaching to that human? Are you preaching to honor the desires of the real customer, the Lord? Because if we get there, we're going to move from this AOS to an MOS. We're going to stop saying come, and we're going to say go. We're going to be satisfied that people are doing stuff who are part of our congregation, and, they, and, and it's taken some form that we would call church. Maybe small C church, but we'd call it church. Or microchurch, or whatever you, in the world you want to call it. I, don't, you know, I wrote some books about microchurch for Exponential, and suddenly I'm the guru of microchurch. I don't know very much about that, except for I do one on Sunday after, Saturday afternoons. Uh, I attend another church, but on Saturdays I lead a microchurch on Zoom. And, I, I, and again, I, I don't know much about it, but here's what I do know, is too often people who are in the driver's seat are going, how can we get your people in here on Sunday morning sitting in a chair? And that is not the point. The point is, how can we get your people doing what you do in the next microgroup or micro-community or whatever is down the road? How do we just keep this thing going out instead of pulling it all back in? Am I making sense? And I want to leave you with one more thing, and it's just a concern. It's just something that is bothering me a lot lately. I talked about this man a little bit earlier, and, and, and he's just on my brain. So, And I was with some other guys this morning. And there's a kid named Jeff Fisher in 1983. He's 20 years old. For about a year, he's been coming to our church in Hermosa Beach. He lives in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, about 45 miles away, and he, he starts showing up on Sunday nights in church. And we're a big rock and roll church, and we do big baptisms, and you know, every two months we baptize sometimes 90, 100 people. And he's a part of that. He starts bringing his friends. And I'm about ready to move to Hawaii and, and plant and all that. And Jeff comes to me and, and says, we've run out of cars. We have too many people coming from the valley to church you need to start a church in Sherman Oaks, California. And I go, no, you need to start a church in Sherman Oaks, California. And he goes, well, I'm 20 years old. And I go, yeah, you need to start a church in Sherman Oaks, California. You obviously are the pastor of these people who don't have enough Volkswagens to get to our church, so you need to be their pastor. Well, what do I do? Well, do your parents have a double garage? Yeah. That works. <laughs> Can you teach the Bible? Yeah, that works. Can you take an offering? Yeah, well, we, what would we need the money for? We'll give it away. But you, but you need to teach them to tithe. You tithe, they should tithe. And oh yeah, we'll take our paid youth pastor 
and we'll replace him and we'll pay his salary to come alongside and babysit you. And we did. He was 20 years old. Now he's 64, 65, something like that. Uh, they planted large handful of churches, seven, eight churches. They were doing work in Haiti. And now he's in, I think, Springfield, Missouri. He's planting a church. And, you know, I never quite know what to do with the transfer growth. Because one of the things that I found is that when people come to your church, they're usually mad at another church. And, but then they want to duplicate what that other church did wrong in your church. <laughs> one of my best friends is, is um, a, a member of a, one of the big, it's actually a granddaughter church of, of ours in Austin, Hill Country. And how we got to be friends was I had it out with him one day. He, we were in Hawaii. He had come from an Assembly of God church, came to our church. He's all mad at them. And then he starts trying to superimpose everything that he hated over there on us. And, uh, and we, we do things differently. We're very simple. We want to be simple, but we want to be really integrated and straightforward. And you're bringing all this malarkey here. So we went out to a restaurant, and I go, either the end of this pie and coffee, you're going to be a full-on member of our church, or you're going to leave our church. That's my goal today, and it's up to you. You're going to choose. And so I just put the screws to him, and, and he, he's one of my best friends. Uh, when I fly around to Japan, whatever, he's putting money into it all that kind of stuff. And so you have these things happening. So my friend Jeff Fisher in Missouri is getting ready to go, and, and, and there's some, some young microchurch guys who are now going to align with him. And I really believe in this microchurch thing. I don't give a rip about the terminology. I just believe that the gospel needs to go into to places it can't go large. It has to go small. And... I don't believe that big is bad. I believe if you start a microchurch and it grows to 17,000 people, like happened to Rick Warren, that that's a good thing. So I don't think size is an issue. I think the MOS versus the AOS is the issue. Instead of saying come, we're saying go. But in the middle of this, I've written a few you know, exponential books, so suddenly I'm the microchurch guru or something. And my friend Jeff is having conflict with these young guys who are already leading microchurches who now want to align with him because they heard about Hope Chapel and all that. But they're saying to him, let's not use that bar that's being offered to us for free on Sunday mornings because you don't want to do the Sunday thing anyway. You know, why? People, people are discovering DMM and, and they're, they're trying to decentralize and they're, they're trying to... But you know what? If you don't have a hub you're not going to have many spokes that endure. And so as, as I'm talking about simplifying, don't hear me saying to oversimplify. If you go online and find a book that I read, I wrote about microchurch, don't hear me saying that's the way. That's a way. The issue is, who's the customer? What does the customer desire? And what is the best delivery system in, in, in the particular location God has made you responsible for. If we can get those things together and all the rest of it, we're going to figure out. And I'm pretty well done, so 